An Old Testament reading from Genesis 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning. And today we come to our, our last passage in the Joseph narrative. And if, if you're paying attention, you notice actually that we're, we're moving a chapter back from where we were last week. And, and that's because we're, we're finishing with this blessing of, of Judah, which is, is not only a fitting conclusion to the Joseph story, but it's, it's, it's also an, an important transition uh, into the Advent season that we'll, be, uh, we'll, we'll start celebrating uh, next Sunday. So before we turn to this passage, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you've given to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these blessings. Help us, Lord, to speak truly of them. I pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to this passage. Lord, and that you would use these truths to strengthen our head and our hearts and our hands. And Lord, that you would strengthen our faith in the one who brings all of the promises in this blessing to pass, Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, we find Jacob blessing his sons at the end of his life, and, and with that said, I, I want to start here by actually having us think about the very possibility of what a blessing is. Because a blessing actually contains much more than we might think. To bless someone is to speak about what is good for that person. And so a blessing is a Bible is a blessing for the human flourishing that God intends for the human creature that he created. And this also means that our flourishing is one thing and not 
another. This actually struck me this, this past week. Our, our family watched the classic movie, it's, it's a Wonderful Life. I'm sure many of you have seen that. Maybe even as you grew up for Christmas, that's one of the movies you watch. And if you know the story, the main character, George Bailey, he comes to a point where he wishes that he had never been born. And from there, George is actually able to see what his town, Bedford Falls, would look like if he had not been born, if, if he'd not been there to help his friends, if he'd not been there to push against the, the town tycoon, Mr. Potter. Without George, Bedford Falls becomes, or it becomes Pottersville. And at that point, the town is no longer characterized by community and, and friendship, but, but really it's just full of, of places to simply get drunk and to take in all kinds of burlesque entertainment. And it's interesting, right? Because the filmmakers assume that Bedford Falls is a better place than Pottersville. That's what makes the movie work. But who are they to say that those kinds of community connections are actually better than the kind of erotic entertainment we see in Pottersville? I mean, if we're primarily creatures who are meant to fulfill those kinds of desires, then Pottersville is actually a step up from Bedford Falls. The movie only works if Bedford Falls is actually closer to our true human flourishing than is Pottersville. But again, who's to say that? If life is ultimately about the things that Pottersville offers, then maybe it actually is best if George had never been born. Because here's the thing, to choose one town over the other, you have to take a position on what human life is ultimately about. You have to have some determinate picture of human flourishing. Otherwise, all we have is preference. You prefer that town and I prefer this town, just like I prefer coffee and maybe you prefer tea. It's not a matter of definitive flourishing because there is no such thing. It's just a matter of, of preference. And so what that means is that if a blessing is a real thing, it contains more than we might initially think. It communicates what is ultimately good for human life. And so with that in mind, let's look at this passage under two headings. The possibility of blessing and the promise of blessing. Let's start first by looking at the very possibility of blessing. Today's passage, it begins with Jacob calling all of his children together. He tells them, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Again, a blessing assumes that there is some true, some true form of human flourishing. Otherwise, what is it that these words of Jacob can actually offer? Who's to say that Jacob isn't just imposing arbitrarily power on his sons? Who's to say that we should listen to his words? Who's to say that Bedford Falls is actually better than Pottersville? And this is a very important question to ask because it, it hits on a distinctly modern ethic. In the modern moment, we are trained to see statements about how life should be as statements of mere power. We're trained to think that Jacob isn't really speaking truly 
Because any claim to truth just is a claim to power. He's just using his power as their father to impose his view of the world upon his children. And perhaps the most influential prophet of of power in in recent times is is the French philosopher Michel Foucault. And for for Foucault, philosophy was was an exercise in uncovering the power structures that, that all of life imposed on us oftentimes without our knowing. And and theologian uh, Angela Franks, she actually shows us how this might play out in in regular life. Here's a a basic example. She she asks us to think about the common 18th century American home. She asks, "What, what, what, what can this tell us? And Franks, writing in the persona of Foucault, she writes this. How did the chairs discipline the body? How did their arrangements in sitting rooms structure the ways people related to each other? And then the key question, how did all this shape mold the consciousness of 18th century Americans? And it's interesting, Franks actually compares this with a, a, a present-day contemporary, the lazy boy recliner. And in contrast to the hard wood, the minimal cushioning, the sharp angles of the 18th century furniture, the lazy boy imposes a disposition of comfort and and luxury, right? It it forms us and crafts us according to to a power structure, just like the the, the older furniture. But in this case, it's the powers of consumerism and, and entertainment. And that's actually an interesting kind of analysis. Foucault tells us to be on guard everywhere because power is everywhere. For Foucault, actually, the only existence free from power is death. True freedom just is death. That's the only kind of freedom there is because in this life, if one power structure is overthrown, there's just going to be another one that's going to take its place. The oppressed will become the oppressor and so on and so forth. And as Christians, we have to wrestle with this question. Are there power structures that oppress? Absolutely. And as Christians, we are called to be aware of this and work to promote peace and justice in every aspect of life. As Foucault points out, we can and do contribute to oppressive power structures, and we often do so in an unknowing way. Consider economics. In today's modern economy, if our main goal in buying what we need is simply, simply the cheapest price, then we will likely be contributing to these kinds of power structures. Theologian William Cavanaugh, in his important book, Being Consumed, he provides the following description of a factory in South America that makes clothes for American consumers. He writes, the workers earn 77 cents per jacket or 56 cents an hour. The factory is surrounded by barbed wire and armed guards. A worker interviewed after her 12-hour shift told told of being unable to feed herself and her three-year-old daughter adequately. Her daughter drinks coffee because they cannot afford milk. Both mother and daughter suffer fainting spells. And when questioned about these conditions, the president of the company that runs the factory, he said the following, If you really ask me, this is not fair. However, he went on, In the United States, if you want to buy a Honda Civic, you can shop around and always you will find cheaper ones. And Kavanaugh goes on to add, this is what the clothing companies were doing, shopping around the whole world for the cheapest price. 
And this truth makes me uncomfortable because I am a perpetuator of this. And so I have to remember the words of James 5 not to withhold the wages from the workers. And yes, to make economic decisions that do not withhold wages from workers, that might mean paying more. And yes, some of us may need to buy the cheapest prices. Absolutely. But as the people of God collectively, if cheapest prices, the cheapest prices are our only guide, then we're likely going to increase the likelihood that wages of workers will be withheld. And so as much as is possible, our economic choices should seek to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so even as the Christmas season approaches, I'd encourage you to find out about how the gifts that you are buying are being made. This is to help fight against unjust power structures. But but there's still a deeper question. Is everything power? No. And and, and the very reason that we know the situation is wrong is because there is something deeper than power. We know putting workers in this condition actually goes against their flourishing. But again, who's to say what flourishing is? All we have is my preference and your preference. I choose Bedford Falls and you choose Pottersville. I choose to buy these goods that support the power of these businesses. You choose to support other goods. That's fine. If any statement about flourishing is just power, then there's nothing stable at all. And scripture tells us this. Look at what Jacob says to his firstborn, Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed Then you defiled it. Reuben is powerful. He uses his power to get what he wants. He uses his power and prominence as the firstborn, as the oldest, to fulfill his urges and his desires. Jacob never should have had multiple wives. And now it gets even worse as as Reuben uses his power to sleep with one of his father's wives, Bilhah, his own stepmother. Why does Reuben do this? Because he can and because he wants to. And so, as Jacob tells us, he is as unstable as water. If might makes right, if power is ultimately all that there is, then absolutely life is always unstable. Ethics and morality is only ever a process of the oppressor becoming the oppressed, and so on and so forth, and back and forth again and again. It's unstable as water. You thrust your head above water as the oppressor, and then you are plunged back underneath as the oppressed. And hearing this, you might object and say, okay, okay, I understand that, but I, I don't support an ethic of power. I just want everyone to be themselves. I just want everyone to do what they think will make them happy. But please see that this is ultimately an ethic of power. As philosopher Alistair McIntyre argues, without, any, without anything outside of us, without anything that can actually call us to account, without some true and transcendent goodness, then the only standard we have for ethics and morality is our own personal emotions and feelings and preferences. But what happens, what happens 
If my wishes and wants go against your wishes and wants, for instance, perhaps you tell me that I should make sure that my workers earn a living wage. But really, all that you're telling me is that you feel, you feel that I should do this. And since there's no order out there, the only order for me, for me must be the one that I feel is right. And I guess my personal order is just different from your personal order. And basically what that means is, well, we just all have different preferences. I like coffee, you like tea. Paying my workers this much is simply how I prefer to be and how I prefer to express myself. If there's no objective human goodness and objective human flourishing out there that stands over and above both of us, over and above my preference and opinion, then we have nothing to appeal to in order to, to arbitrate, in order to direct any kind of ethical discussion, any kind of ethical disagreement. In the end, if you want me to pay my workers a living wage, you're going to have to force me to do it. Force is the only way to overcome disagreement here. You'll need more power than me to impose your preferences upon me. And so the ethical preferences of the most powerful will win out. Friends, welcome to modern public discourse across the political and the ideological spectrum. Serious and civil conversations about ethics are often replaced by the rage and the brute force of cancel culture and the Twitter mob. This is ethics as power. This is winning an ethical argument not by discussion, but by shouting someone else down. This is might makes right. Think about it. It might seem oppressive to say that there is some objective goodness, some objective form of human flourishing that we have to humbly submit to. But our only other option is an ethic of force and power and coercion. At bottom, there is no more violent ethic than just be yourself because only the most powerful will be able to truly and fully be themselves. This is the ethic of Reuben, and it is as unstable as water. And if that is all that we have, then our only hope is to be as powerful, as preeminent, as Reuben. And again, if any truth claim is ultimately just an act of power, then we have no way, like Jacob, to actually bless our children. And friends, everything about this passage rests on the fact that Jacob can actually give something good to his children. Consider a similar case. Corrie ten Boom, in her memoir about her family's resistance to the Nazis in Holland, uh, The Hiding Place, she recalls an instance between her father and her childhood self on a train. She asked her father about a particular adult sin. And then we read this. Tin Boom writes, My father turned to look at me, as he always did when answering a question. But to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case off the floor, and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He said. I stood up and I, I tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and the spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. 
And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. Why would her father do this? Is this a power play on his part? Is this an act of of coercive and harmful censorship? If what is basic to human life is power, then the answer is yes. He is determining what is best for her and what it is that she should know. He's exercising power and coercion over her. Again, the key question, can a parent give something good to their child or is it all just power? I recently read an article in the BBC about parents intentionally deciding to raise their children as neither male nor female. As one parent explained about her relationship to her children, I wanted them to be who they want to be. I don't want to decide for them. And I certainly understand this position because if Foucault is right, this makes perfect sense. If Foucault is right, then these parents are disassembling one more coercive power structure that would impose itself upon her kids. But what this also means is that, strictly speaking, we have nothing to give our children. We cannot tell our children that there is some knowledge that you are just too young for. We cannot tell our children what a gift your male or female body is. And yes, helping children receive the good gift of their bodies requires care and sensitivity. Because certain children may very well struggle in receiving this gift. Yet in all of these ways, parents bless their children and they guide them in the true way of flourishing. But if everything is power, we can't tell our children anything at all that would form them in some determinate way that would point them to some definitive form of flourishing. Strictly speaking, we cannot give our children anything at all. Even to teach them right or wrong would be to impose power upon them. It would be deciding for them. It would be coercion. To bless them would be to harm them. And please hear me. This does not mean to impose stereotypes upon your children. In fact, the the irony is that at times, at times, the rejection of our bodies can actually reinforce these stereotypes. If my daughter does not like pink or princesses or tea parties, then we might think, well, maybe she's not a female. If my son doesn't like blue or football or GI Joes, then maybe he's not really a male. But this actually plays into the very power of these stereotypes. Your children may or may not like these things, but in such cases, these stereotypes, they're being used as the criterion and the standard for making such decisions. These stereotypes are actually being given more force here. True masculinity and femininity are not these stereotypes. In fact, Christian parents in the spirit of Foucault should work to dissemble, to deconstruct these coercive power structures by not imparting an understanding of maleness and femaleness that is is kind of hobbled together by cultural caricatures. As Christian parents, it's important that we seek to truly understand God's intention for men and for women and to impart, to give 
to gift this vision to our children. For instance, if you can make it, I'd invite you to the monthly fatherhood study at our church that's digging into these kinds of questions. With that, there are many exceptional resources on these issues that have recently been written. If you have any questions, please reach out and let's connect about that. Again, to give a gift is to believe that this gift is good for your child. To bless our children as Jacob does, this requires that there is a true form of human flourishing, both spiritually and bodily. Otherwise, the only true gift is to give our children nothing at all, just, just a kind of blank space on which they must decide all things about themselves, for themselves, by themselves. But this is a weight that is much, much heavier than a suitcase of spare watch parts. And if that is all we have, then Jacob has nothing at all to say to his sons. And this brings us to our second and our final point, the promise of blessing. The greatest blessing that we find in today's passage is the blessing that Jacob gives to Judah. And it's important to stress the act of giving, the act of giving here, because as we will see, gift is the key way to understand the blessing that Judah receives. It is a gift to Judah from God, which is imparted by the words of his father, Jacob. It's not an act of coercive power that Jacob exercises over Judah. No, this is for Judah's good this is truly, truly for his good, for his flourishing. And among other things, it's a blessing of overflowing abundance. This blessing tells us that Judah will tie his donkey to a vine. And what that means here is that so great will be the great harvest that the donkey can eat as much as it wants. The blessing also tells us that Judah will wash his garments in wine. Wine will be as plentiful as water. In fact, wine and milk will be in such, such abundance that they will actually color Judah's eyes and his teeth. And it's important to note here that when, when Jacob here speaks of Judah, he speaks of both Judah and his descendants. He's speaking of the tribe of Judah. But why is it that the tribe of Judah would receive such a great blessing? Again, this is not something that Judah earns, but something that Judah receives as a gift. And to explain how this works, we have to remember that Judah is the fourth son. And the three other sons have all done terrible things. Again, Reuben, Reuben slept with Jacob's wife, with his own stepmother. And as for Simeon and Levi, in response to a very, very real wrong done to their sister, they enact a brutal revenge and slaughter an entire village. And when Jacob confronts them, they defend their actions, and, and they do so without any hint of repentance or remorse. And so Jacob says in his blessing to them, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. However, as you might point out, Judah too has done some very, very bad things. He abandons his fathers and his brothers. He leaves his twice-widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, without the son that he has promised her. In fact, the only thing Judah seems to care about is physical revenge, or sorry, physical pleasure and revenge. 
Recall how Tamar tricks Judah into lying with her by disguising herself as a prostitute. She then conceives twin children, and when Judah finds out that she is pregnant, he is furious. He declares in public these words, bring her out and let her be burned. But this act of coercive power, it actually sets the stage for the turning point of Judah's life. Tamar presents the things that Judah gave her as a pledge when he took her for a prostitute, and then she says this, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. But this is not the first time in Judah's life that we encounter the phrase, please identify. The same Hebrew phrase is used by Judah and his brothers as they present the coat of Joseph, that coat stained with the blood of a goat, as they present it to their father Jacob. They say, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. As one commentator writes, these words jar Judah's memory and cut more deeply than even Tamar had expected. Judah here is confronted not only by his sins against Tamar, but also his sins against Joseph and selling him and his sins against father, his father and lying to his father about Joseph. But here's the thing. What does Judah do in this moment? He recognizes his wrong. He repents. He confesses his own unrighteousness. He declares in public of Tamar, she is more righteous than I. And he's not deeming Tamar's conduct as righteous, but he's saying she has acted in a much more righteous way than I have. Judah accepts what it is that he has done. He acknowledges his own lack of righteousness. He admits his sin. And in doing this, Judah does what Reuben and Simeon and Levi have not. Judah repents. Judah acknowledges his lack of righteousness. He admits his sin. And he knows that it is he and not Tamar who deserves this public execution. Judah then experiences the mercy of living a life that he does not deserve to live. And this continues. Judah knows that his present life in Egypt, with both food and land, this also is not something he deserves. This rests upon the good graces of Joseph. And so when their, fathers die, when their father dies, Judah and his brothers, they're, they're worried that Joseph might now take revenge and, and kill them. They, they, they essentially murdered Joseph, and, and now they fear that Joseph will actually murder them. And so the brothers come to Joseph to make sure that he has truly forgiven them. In response, Joseph says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph explains that by God's sovereignty, God has brought good out of evil. But notice how Joseph begins his answer. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And initially, this might sound encouraging to us. Joseph is not ultimately our judge. Phew. But that doesn't mean that we are without a judge. No, Joseph is telling them that they are ultimately accountable to God. 
But think about this. Does this give us any greater peace or assurance? This means that they and we are accountable to the perfectly good, just, powerful, holy, and righteous God that knows and sees absolutely everything that we do. Doesn't this actually put all of us in a worse situation? Yes and no. We have to trace out an important hint, an important pattern in Joseph's answer. Am I in the place of God? Joseph is not, and Joseph knows that. However, the very problem of sin is that we, all of us, have done just this. We have put ourselves in the place of God. This is what Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah have all done. The brothers have exerted their power for the sake of selfish gain. They've tried to put themselves in the place of God by rejecting the life that God has called them to and instead simply pursuing their own personal preferences over and above everything else. And we have all done the same thing. But if God, the true judge, is perfectly just, then we must all be punished for our injustice. But we find something amazing here. God, in his perfect mercy, actually puts himself in the place of us. If sin is humanity foolishly seeking to become God, then our salvation is God actually becoming human. Again, a key question for this passage is, why is it that Judah receives this great blessing? He receives it because he is the oldest brother who repents. He is the brother who knows that he does not deserve it. And ironically, in the kingdom of God, this is what qualifies Judah for this blessing. Remember Judah's turning point. He looks at Tamar, who is about to be publicly executed, and he says, she is more righteous than I. He knows that he is the one who deserves this death, not her. And this humble confession of another's righteousness before God and neighbor, this is actually what qualifies Judah to receive this blessing. The same is true for us. We too have to look to another who is more righteous than us. In fact, we have to admit that this one alone is righteous. And in a wonderful example of you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, this truly righteous one, he is the descendant of this union between Judah and Tamar. Christ, the one who is to come, he will not be saved from execution, but he will endure it. He will be killed on the cross. This one is God in the place of humanity. This is the one who takes the curse that we deserve so that we might receive the blessing of Judah that Judah doesn't deserve, but only Christ deserves. This is God the Son become human. This is God in the place of us. And if we, like Judah, repent, and if we place our faith in this one, Jesus Christ, he secures for us the very blessing of Judah. How do we know? Because this is the blessing that Christ provides his people. What is Christ's first miracle? It is his beginning to fulfill the blessing of Judah. Christ turns water into an abundance of wine at a wedding. 
He comes to bring joy and fellowship and celebration and an overflowing abundance of the very best wine that these wedding guests have ever tasted. It's so much wine that they could quite literally wash their clothes in it. When Christ works his very first miracle, he is fulfilling the blessing of Judah. And this is because Christ is the descendant about whom this blessing ultimately speaks. Jacob tells Judah that the scepter will not depart from him and his tribe. And eventually, from the tribe of of Judah, David will rise up and he will be the king of God's people. And one day, God will tell David that one of his own sons will reign forever and shall be called the Son of God. And it is this one, this true king, that all of the brothers will bow down, even Joseph. Jacob tells his son, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Again, if we, like Judah, admit that we do not deserve this blessing, if we, like Judah, admit that we are not righteous, if we, like Judah, place our faith in the blessing that is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, only then do we, like Judah, actually receive the blessing. And this is important because the blessing of Judah, like any blessing, again, it points to a definitive form, a determinate form of human flourishing. To make a blessing just is to make a moral and ethical assertion. But this is not narrow. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But Christ gives us this divine blessing and he takes the divine curse upon himself as he hangs from the cross. On the cross, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in response, this time we do not hear the loving words of the father. Instead, the sky is darkened in the silence, in the curse of divine judgment. Christ endures this so that we might receive those words of blessing that only he deserves. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. This is the great blessing that we become beloved children of God the Father. This is amazing. If you trust in Christ, you are God's beloved child. This is amazing. The God of the whole universe delights over you with all of the joy and the favor with which he looks upon the risen Christ himself. That is the blessing freely offered to us. Jacob is only an image here. The true father who gives the greatest gifts to his children is God himself. And who could ever think of a greater joy, a greater flourishing than this, to be a beloved child of God? And to the extent that we rest in this promise, to that extent we receive the great and gracious blessing of Judah. And to the extent that we look forward, to that same extent, we look forward to the fulfillment of Christ's kingdom. 
the one and only true flourishing of the human. One day, we will live fully under Christ's good and gracious rule and an abundance of fine wine and celebration and perfect loving communion with both God and neighbor and a world without sin and without death. This is not Pottersville. This is not even Bedford Falls. This is the heavenly Jerusalem itself. And this certain promise is not coercive power, but the great gift that God offers to all, to all who receive the blessing of Judah because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. This and this alone is for our good. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you've given to us. Help us to rest in the blessing of Judah, the life, the fulfillment, the flourishing that you have called us to, where we will enjoy you and glorify you forever. And we can rest in this because of Christ Jesus, the descendant of Judah who alone deserves this blessing and who in his mercy gave it to us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.